Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 110 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, this week we have uh, a very special guest with us. We are not alone. So this week we are welcoming Daryl Baxter to the show. So Daryl Baxter is a freelance writer based in Manchester, England. His work has appeared in places like Wired UK, Bloody Disgusting, Mac Format, Games Radar, and more. So apart from his writing duties, Daryl also is a fellow podcaster. He hosts both the Pal Keys and Outpost Show podcast. So Daryl, welcome to the show. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Angela, this is your cue to also welcome Daryl. Oh, yeah. Hi, Daryl. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I, I'm being patient and quiet. I, I figured you'd have some things to ask, Daryl. So a uh, very important question, first things first. I have to get this out of the way. So this might be a cultural thing, but mm. is it pronounced SNES or SNES? Because I've heard you say the former, <laughs> but Angela and I say the latter. And we're kind of curious, like, let's settle this once and for all. Oh, you know, I think it's just something I'm just, I was just brought up with. Um, it's just SNES that I say. Um, it's it's crazy. But I respectfully say like SNES like now and again. Even then I just got it wrong. But yeah. Yeah, you have a little trouble saying it. <laughs> I respectfully say it in different ways just just because. But yeah, um, I think in, in these part of the woods of England, um, it's SNES at the moment. But we'll see. <laughs> so do you say, do you say NES or NES? I say NES. Okay. Okay. <laughs> At least you're consistent. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and and where we live, Mega Drive is pronounced Genesis. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've never gotten used to that. It's always the Mega Drive. <laughs> always. Well, it, it makes more sense. Sega Mega mm. Drive, right? It sounds better. I think they had to change it for North America because there was something else called the Mega Drive. Yeah. We're also dumb dums here, right? <laughs> Not dumb. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know why. I, I'm. Maybe it's because of Phil Collins' band Genesis back in the day. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really thought it would be some sort of prog rock thing. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Sega and Phil Collins. That's a weird mix. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. uh, so uh, our first real question is one that we all, always ask to, uh, like to ask our guests. And that is like, what is your current uh, podcasting setup? And uh, then we'll get into some kind of like tech stuff that Angelo really enjoys talking about a little too much. Yeah, because I, I have to say, when we were setting up, Daryl said, yeah, I just have to set up my iPad. And I got frightened for a second because I, I thought he'd be recording with his iPad <laughs> and using some sort of dark mag- magic because we all know you can't get real work done with an iPad. Apparently so, yeah. Unless I look at Federico's setup when it's some kind of like crazy <laughs> Apollo 13 setup. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's a strange one. At the moment, I mean, I, I'm using a 2013 MacBook Air um, pre, you know, um, like keyboard trouble uh, with a USB ports, um, a lovely Yeti microphone and, you know, Audacity and Skype. And then I use the iPad for the show notes and anything else just to kind of keep track throughout the show. And that's pretty much it in the minute. Um, I mean, my MacBook is pretty much falling apart after six years. Um, so hopefully, maybe um, in a couple of weeks at certain events, it might change. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so i i feel you there i i use a mid 2012 uh a, a macbook right now so i totally under i'm kind of like in your um sort of like uh same predicament and angela and i often discuss that because of the fact that like right now if i look at the mac landscape i'm not sure what i can get because i don't have the space right now where i live for a full-blown desktop yeah um and so like i'm i also don't want to spend you know bottom floor two thousand bucks on something Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went to the Apple store a couple of days ago just to look at the those new MacBook Pros that got announced.
announced with the apparently the new membrane i'm raising my hands in like the inverted commas and i tried it <laughs> and it, it still feels the same to me guys it, there's no difference and i thought maybe this time if they're gonna it's gonna be different and no no not at all so i'm still struggling as to what the upgrade could be because i mean i I use the iPad like for everything else, you know, if there are any, you know, ways of recording uh, through an iPad through Skype at the same time, I'd be all in guys. I really would. Um, but at the minute I just use the MacBook Air for the odd game, the retro games and the podcasting. And that's it really. That's really it. I'm patiently waiting for them to add the functionality to be able to record and <laughs> listen and talk on Skype on an iPad because I obviously everybody knows I was joking. You can get a lot of work done. I use my iPad a lot, but it's just not feasible, right? I'm lucky enough that my iMac is great. It's still good. It's what going to be four years old this year. It doesn't feel like a four year old machine. I say that all the time. Well, it's because you don't wife, let your kids touch it. No, my kids are not allowed anywhere near it. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Very quickly, Gerald, coming back to your Apple Store experience. So we, there's been a lot of sort of um, stories that have come out, you know, about the the turmoil of like the way in which the Apple stores are run. So how is your Apple Store experience? It's been fine, to be honest. I mean, I remember looking at Michael Arment's tweet a few weeks ago about how he had a bad experience. And I mean, I came in like the week after because I was curious as to how the Apple Watch, a certain Apple Watch model worked with a Milanese loop because I was looking at a, like a an upgrade because I'm a series zero. It's crazy. And I wanted to see really just how a aluminum um, like silver model would work with like a, just a stainless steel band. Cause I'd never seen that before. And I just went in and straight away, you know, um, I was just greeted with a Apple store, you know, representative directed me to the guy to the table. And I just spent like half an hour just trying all the different things on. And it was great. You know, it was a, like a casual thing. Never felt pressured. Never felt like I was on like a time limit. It was, it was great. I, I honestly didn't have any complaints. I mean, my main Apple store is, um, is in the Arndale shopping center in Manchester city center. So it's just a walk away really. And you know, I'm just, I'm, I've got no complaints about it. I mean, I've never really had a, a bad experience. I mean, I think the only thing that happened was when I was buying, you know, I was, this is when I was preparing for the um, iPad Pro late last year for the USB-Cs because I didn't have any USB-C cable. And I wanted a way to charge my iPhone or AirPods through the iPad and saw the USB-C to Lightning and I didn't know what to do. Um, I was a bit fearful of paying with the Apple Store app. So I was waiting for someone and it took a few more minutes than usual. But eventually I, I paid, had a small chat and that was it. And that's really like the worst <laughs> experience I've had. It's it's not been a, a bad time. I've always um, felt, you know, like I've, uh, I'm not stepping on anyone's toes, not wasting anyone's time. Just fine. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes uh, someone might, just say about their experience, be a bit too frustrated and then maybe just kind of vent about it on Twitter. Because I think we've all vented on Twitter in some way. And I think unfortunately... I do it on like a weekly basis at this point, I think. So <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. So I think unfortunately, sometimes when you have someone, you know, like Marco, you know, it kind of like spreads a bit more than usual, you could say. But, you know, I've been fine. I don't know about you two guys. I mean, how has it been for you two? I've been pretty good. Every time I go in to do something, I get served pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't go that often, even though I have one right near my office. It's not, it's a five minute walk. So if I ever need anything, I just go. And uh, it's been fine. I, 
I, I mean, I think you wait a little longer than usual sometimes. And they do insist on like, if you buy anything small to pay with the app, but I always tell them, I feel like I'm stealing something yeah. by doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I go to the same Apple store. I'm five minutes the other way, right? Because you and I are diametrically opposed work-wise. But um, the last time I went in there, I, I did feel a bit of like a herded sheet mentality because they, I was going to get some uh, earbuds replaced and they said, oh, just go upstairs. And that was kind of a super vague. And there's no one to greet me on the second floor. So I kind of just wandered around for a while until uh, someone got free and was like, oh, you seem to be very lost. Can I help you? And then like just pushed me into a corner for 20 minutes while I waited. Did you wander around with like earbuds hanging off your hands just <laughs> no, slowly no, through no. the store like a ghost? Uh, <laughs> hoping praying, wishing for the best. No, no. Uh, it was just a very busy kind of moment. And obviously, like uh, contextually speaking, obviously, I can understand um, how uh, with that many people running around at the same time, it can get kind of hectic. So I'm curious the next time I go, if I go off like in an off hour, how it's going to be. But I also went to like Friday at like two. I thought it'd be quiet, but it wasn't. Now, the, the Montreal store is always packed. My nephew used to work there and he said at certain points, they actually make the most money per uh, square foot of any Apple store. I don't know if that's ah. true or not, but apparently they do. I believe it. It's not a huge space either, right? So No. Mm. And there's it's always, always full. Right. So talking about the present, moving to the future, uh, Daryl, uh, apart from, you know, a viable sort of like portable computer, do you have any like dreams or desires or wishes for WWDC coming up? <laughs> Oh, I mean, my ultimate one would just be like an iPad OS. You know, I've been like kind of <laughs> shouted down the last couple of years. I'm like, no, that can't happen. But, you know, we've got HomePod OS. We've got, you know, TV OS. Why not an iPad OS? That would be my ultimate dream. Um, but, you know, if that wasn't going to happen, I'd just like to see, you know, better multitasking handled in a 12.9 inch. You know, I could have maybe mm. properly like three apps at once, perhaps, or even just, you know, better support for keyboards for other apps, whether it's games or even just the like the widgets as well. I mean, I'd love to kind of just see that two pane widget come back from iOS 10 back into 13, really, because I just don't like yeah. how having you've just got one column of the widgets, whereas I'd love to have kind of two panes on the iPad for different shortcuts even. I think that'd be great to have. But yeah, that, that'd be kind of my three top things right now. But like I say, ultimate one would be, iPad OS. <laughs> yeah. I, I keep hoping for that being able to record and talk at the same time thing that we talked about before. Mm. And uh, yeah, improve multitasking because I, I find myself not wanting to use it on my iPad. It just is. It's it feels tough. clunky. Mm, it is. It is. It's like a single usage all the time, right? Like you have to do your your lock into one activity continually. Mm. Yeah. Well, it with the iPad Pro, you have a twelve point nine as well, right, yeah. uh, Daryl? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, since I got it, I, it does feel kind of neat where you can kind of have three windows at the same time, but one is floating on top of the other two. And it's not reliable sometimes on getting it to slide over. For example, sometimes I have messages that work, and then every once in a while I'll try to slide it over and it just switches app. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I have that. What about you, Angela, apart from that? Any other dreams or desires? Wishes? What do you go to bed at night thinking? <laughs> uh, that they don't make my iPad like uh, deprecated in any way where uh, it's only the new uh, 2019 or is it 2018? Your, yeah, it's 2018, right? Mm. They came out the new iPads yeah. with the face with the face camera. Yeah, with the face camera, <laughs> the face ID. Uh, I just hope the 2017 iPad Pro I have doesn't lose out on any features apart from anything face ID related that I understand. But in terms of power, it's, it's still pretty good. So I'm hoping. Everything that goes to the new iPads comes to mind. And uh, 
I keep saying this, it has nothing to do with the iPad, but I keep hoping they kind of rejigger the uh, iCloud storage Here we tiers. go again, yes. I yeah. know, I keep yeah. saying it, For but your like, photos, <laughs> it makes no sense that you from, <laughs> you know, you go from 200 gigabytes to two terabytes. I, there needs some sort of in-between. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on my end, something interesting and sort of something that's not talked about necessarily, but I want to see better applications of AR. Like, apart from like last fall, we saw that what the, the basketball thing that seemed to like be interesting, but no one kind of adopted. Cause I feel like a lot of these capabilities aren't actually being adopted in meaningful ways. So I'm curious to see if and on that front, if there's anything that's going to be brought to the table, um, you know, in a meaningful way that people will want to use going forward. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They've had so much trouble with the AR. Like Tim Cook really insists on it being the next best thing. And now it's, uh, it's kind of just there. It still all feels sort of gimmicky to me. Well, it's just like VR, right? Like VR, and this is a great segment in switching into video games, but like VR by and large doesn't really uh, drive sales uh, of consoles. Daryl, have you tried VR? I've tried VR. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, when I'm going to uh, visit family and friends back in Lincoln, that's where I'm originally from, there's um, a gaming bar that I go to that I'm friends with the owner and we try the Oculus Rift and mm. we were trying like say Beat Saber and that's just amazing. Just like having like a lightsaber to, well, to the beats, you know, of certain things, it's fantastic. <laughs> and even before that, I remember trying like different like uh, modifications of say Quake 2 and Portal and Portal 2 and that was just surreal you know especially when he got um oh, what's the ball uh, wesley i think he's called where he tells you to kind of like look away when he's doing something but instead of like using the mouse you're using your actual head to turn and it's such a surreal immersive experience but uh yeah that's that's definitely something that i'm keeping my eye on i mean playstation vr is a great start for it especially for the uh you know like the mid-tier lower tier side of getting in there but yeah, but even then, I feel like the the barrier to entry cost wise is still kind of significant for that kind of thing, though, right? Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like how 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 much is it in, um, in like your part of the world? Do you remember? Do you know offhand? So I mean, for the VR, I mean, it's about three hundred pounds, and for okay. the Oculus, I think you're looking at about double for the minimum model. And that's and that it requires an, a PC to be able to run it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the uh, well, I think right now like a mid tier. So you'd be looking at about another eight hundred pounds for a, a good PC to run Oof. it, really. Yeah, easily. It's terrible. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's sort of out of reach for most people. Unless, I mean, if you're a real hobbyist and really love this and really want to try it, it's there and it's improved so much from when I was a kid and people would talk about VR and it was the wave of the future. And here we are, twenty some odd years later, and uh, we're still starting to get it and starting to get it right. It's just on my end. It doesn't interest me. And, you know, I, I heard you talking uh, the other day about how you're more interested in retro games now. And mm. I've kind of fallen that way as well. Mm. And it's why the Switch interests me to, so much more than my PS4. I have a PS4 that I hardly ever use to play anything apart from uh, an F1 game. Mm. And it's my Switch that I use the most. Yeah, I do the same. I mean, the Switch definitely kind of stands like beside my iPad is one of my the most favorite things I've ever bought really because it's really got the best of both worlds because you can go onto the store and you can buy say for instance Alex Kidd if you wanted to you know like lovingly like ported from the M2 team which are doing a fantastic job you know bringing all the games to the forefront and they're also making the um, like the Genesis Mini that's coming out in the fall and you can just dock it you know and easily you can just pick up where you've left off from your train commute, perhaps 
and you can carry it on and you can also carry it on with a different controller as well. I love it. it it's just, and it really kind of makes me think as to what could be coming next from that as well. Cause I feel like the switch is such a, I think it's almost like kind of the iPhone equivalent really of kind of the game side, because you can easily just play any game really you wish now. And I don't think really there's a limit as to what Nintendo could do with the system now. Nintendo really, uh, really got a hit compared to what they started with the Wii U. Yeah. You saw like you saw the beginnings of of what is the Switch in the Wii U. Yeah. And uh, I I'll say it all the time, I love the Wii U. Like yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed playing it. There were like some it. amazing games on there. Yeah. But yeah. the fact that the Switch is just one thing and you can just pick it up and play it or put it down and play it on your TV is really amazing. And there's some great games on there. It's it's unbelievable. Mm, it is. I mean, I, I kind of feel like the Switch is like the, <laughs> it's almost like the Wii U 2 in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an amazing thing because, I mean, I was I was listening to the episode that you had with um, Zach Saichi um, of Menu Bar, and he was saying the same thing. Like, he liked the Wii U. I like the Wii U. Some fantastic games on there. I think Zombie U was a great thing on there. And, mm. you know, and I think now it's just the fact that, you can take the switch anywhere you want and you won't get a reduced experience. It's all the same experience. It's just the fact that you can take it wherever you want. And I think it's fantastic now. And and that's what appeals to a lot of developers out there now. It's why we're seeing, you know, Dark Souls on there, Skyrim and, and Sega are just kind of bringing everything they want to it. When Capcom as well, they're doing an amazing job. I feel with all the games, Street Fighter, Onimusha, um, the Castlevania collection that came out a few yes. weeks ago. Fantastic. Yeah. I think we're making Brian jealous. Uh, Brian, <laughs> have you have you put this in for a wedding gift? Is it on I have, registry? It's, yeah. it's it's an active discussion in this household. Okay. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> coming back coming back though, it, what I find really interesting about the Switch is that it addresses gamers' needs in ways that other consoles currently aren't, right? And understanding yeah. the changing landscape of how people interact with their tech, right? So traditionally speaking, you needed that television, you need to be stationary, but now you can it's either or and now it's it's both, right? Because you either mm-hmm. were playing a Super Nintendo or you're playing a Game Boy, for example, but now your Super Nintendo is your Game Boy. Yeah, that's it. And it looks amazing. Yes, that's the the bonus too. And just aesthetically speaking, I love the way it looks too, just in terms of like the console itself. Yeah, it's ingenious. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's really cute too. Like that's the thing, right? It's I see it every time I sit down to watch TV, it's there and it, it's very inviting, right? You just want to go pick it up and use it. And I even if I'm not in the mood to play, for, play with a game, I go to it, pick it up, see what's new in the store, see if there's any new stories. Uh, it's just it's just such a fun console to use and Nintendo really got the ease of use perfectly this time because the the Wii U mm. was kind of clunky in a lot of ways a slow interface you don't have this problem with the Switch at all no no they definitely learned from what they shouldn't have done really i mean i think the main thing was really the name <laughs> to be honest because yes yeah, absolutely it, yeah it was a bit of a disaster in that point because i the thing is i'll never forget this i mean i was in a, like a game because we have a stores all these stores across the uk of just they call game that's that's what they are and i was just kind of like looking at say the wii u games in it and a mother and a son were just kind of looking at the console and she brought like a sales advisor over and she thought, Oh, I've got a Wii at home. Is this just an add on? Do I just kind of connect it mm. to the Wii? And is that it? And he had to explain, no, it's, it's a new console. You have to put it on. And I was kind of thinking in my head, she must think it's kind of like how the 32 X is with the mega drive. You just slot it in and that's it, <laughs> you know? And unfortunately that was lost on so many people and, I, you know, and to call it the Wii U as well. I mean, I don't 
I don't see what the meaning was behind. I mean, to be honest, I don't see what the we was really in naming, but <laughs> I think to to call a new console something that had the Wii name in was a big misstep, unfortunately. Without putting a two at the other end, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the PS2 worked, PS3 worked. That's fine, but you're right. It's It does feel like an add-on. Oh, what's this U that you add on? Oh, it's an extra screen. That's mm. what people would think. Mm-hmm. They did not, even, even people that are familiar with video games were a little confused by it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, yeah. It got lost, unfortunately. So, yeah. And I think that's where the kind of the Switch came in, and it's kind of really helped it now. I think it's almost erased what the Wii U was from people now. Oh, yeah. I think people yeah, think absolutely. it's now gone from GameCube to Wii to Switch, and that's it. <laughs> I want to meet someone whose favorite console is the Wii U. Actually, <laughs> hey, hey uh, well, you 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 host a podcast with somebody who who puts it rates it very highly. It, no, what I'm saying is like that versus the Switch. Like, which would you pick? Oh right? no, of course. Well, there you so. go. <laughs> um, sort of a follow up question. So, uh, Daryl, you have been covering video games for years and years. Mm. My question to you then is, how do you feel like the landscape of covering both retro and modern video games has changed over the last like five, six, seven years um, in terms of uh, both content as well as like reaction? I feel like they've kind of converged more than ever now, you know, especially in the last two years. And I think, I think the switch has kind of like been a big factor of that. And also of Nintendo's classic line as well, with like say the NES mini, the SNES mini and what could be coming next. And I think with the kind of like the age range that we have, I mean, a lot of people now kind of are nostalgic for what kind of appeared 20 years ago. I feel like that's kind of like the minimum limit. So now we're kind of remembering us from the games of the 90s now. And mm. now we're in an age of 2019 where we're kind of remembering all those kind of little games that we used to love as a, as a kid, whether it was Ridge Racer, whether it was Tekken or Donkey Kong Country. They're all kind of coming to the forefront now. So I feel like that it's definitely not really kind of 70 30 in the modern games as it used to be. It's more like 50 50 now. And you could easily kind of like say pitch something about a retro game, a retrospective, or either on what could have been or just the game itself or the bosses. And you will easily have it in a publication because there's a market there now for it, but there really is. And I think there's definitely a louder voice out there now, whether it's on Twitter, other social medias or podcasts as well, where they want to see certain games come back or certain systems come back. So I definitely feel like it's converged more than ever now. And I think we'll see in the next year of kind of more classic consoles appearing because we've got the Genesis Mini coming, you know, which is fantastic. And well, yeah, the the finally officially licensed one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I don't know in the UK, but in in the, in, in North America, like there have been a lot of these like third party, um, uh, really cheap plastic, really bad response, um, sort of like consoles you can buy at like mm. uh, like a big box store that have a lot of the flagship uh, Genesis games, but really are just horrible, horrible, horrible iterations of them. Yeah, and I think people have kind of realized that they are terrible experiences. You can buy something for like either, you know, £40, $40. You actually play the thing and it either doesn't sound right in Golden Axe perhaps or you're kind of like collecting a ring in Sonic and it's got like a really kind of high-pitched ring, you know, um, grab for some reason and it kind of like skews with your nostalgic memory and it kind of mm. turns your kind of like warm and fuzzy feeling of playing that game into like, I want to get out of this now. I don't want to do this <laughs> at all. <laughs> so I feel that's kind of like where Sega kind of like realized this and thought, no, we're going to just scrap what we're doing with the Genesis Mini now and really just kind of go for it. 
So I think uh, we're going to be seeing a lot less of these, you know, inverted commas again, licensed consoles. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, like they also have the roadmap of like watching the successes of Nintendo and then seeing how badly um, Sony screwed up with the PlayStation Classic. Oh, yes. Yeah. Don't get me started <laughs> on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only so the weirdest thing about this in um, so my fa- one of my favorite PS1 games is a game called IQ Intelligent Cube, oh, which right. you could not buy in the PlayStation store, but which was in the PlayStation Classic. Yeah. So I was debating spending the 80 to 100 dollars just for this one game <laughs> i hear you there i was the same for tekken 3 because you could never buy it on the yes. store and but you can get it on the classic crazy crazy yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean like that that largely was you know uh i i went to my local walmart and there were probably seven or eight copies just sitting behind the glass display case like the week it came out mm. yeah meanwhile when the uh the nes mini or the snes mini came out you had to like kill people to get them <laughs> Yes, quite literally, yes. It was a Mad Max-style scenario. <laughs> well, I went straight to the source. I went straight to the source for my Super Nintendo Classic. I went to the Nintendo Store in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's true. That, that was like a whole event for you. And the guy had two left, and he's like, do you want one? I was like, yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so. Daryl brought up a good point about uh, convergence, and there's one game I bought recently, well, a few months ago, that set this up for me, and it's uh, The Messenger. I don't know if you've played that, Daryl, but it's it's basically like a game that has 8-bit and 16-bit in one, and it's um, it's like a play on Ninja Gaiden, sort of. I don't, you, I don't know if you've played it. I am familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's so well done and a lot of fun, and it really brings back memories of playing Ninja Gaiden, although it's made okay, hold on. Is for it, a is modern... It Ninja Gaiden or Ninja Gaiden, Angelo? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and as I was saying, Ninja Gaiden, I knew you were going to say something. So Ninja Gaiden, perhaps? Yes. But let's well, not do that. That sounds very pedantic. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is something like that, although made for a modern audience. So it's not as punishingly difficult as Ninja Gaiden was uh, when we first played that. It, it, anyway, just it sort of brings back the feeling of nostalgia and something modern where it's what companies are doing really well now in getting these more retro style games out it's Mm. they seem to be the games i buy the most often like Mm. something like steam world dig has been one of my favorite games of the past few years and it's very retro-esque yeah yeah i'm trying to figure out what the patient zero of this phenomenon was and the closest i came to it was shovel knight I think is kind of the sort of like the harbinger of original content on newer consoles that people really accepted um, and kind of showed a successful model in which people can harness retro power and, and bring it to a modern audience. I'd say Super Meat Boy. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's even better. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good call on that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 Leave it to the professional, Brian. <laughs> right. Of course. Yes. Uh, I will uh, now exit that? this. Uh, let me turn this off. <laughs> uh, but speaking of that, like, uh, uh, there's so many like favorite games to like sort of like fanboy over right Mm. um so i feel like we should dedicate the next 90 to 120 minutes to just talking about (laughs) our favorite games yes let's do it (laughs) (laughs) i'm not good with that a modern and retro angelo so like you and i discuss video games on a very almost sadly regular basis um what sticks out in your head most that you've played like either with your kids or yourself over the last like five to ten years that you keep coming back to well breath of the wild is up there and i got that i'm one of the few people that bought that on the wii u because i couldn't afford to get a switch at that point so i bought it on the wii u and we played it for hundreds of hours and we played it we always i rarely played that game alone it was often just with my kids it was a fun experience to play together um recently and it's not even a recent game Mm -hmm. but mario odyssey was was one of those 
And um, the most recent has been, uh, well, actually, there's two. Smash Brothers Ultimate, mm. obviously, and uh, the most recent uh, Yoshi's Crafted World. Uh, can you tell this is a Nintendo family? Amazing. <laughs> what about you, Daryl? Like, what, what really sticks out in your heart and your brain? Oh, so are we going for, like, for all-time favorites here? Whatever you'd like. Well, oh. yeah, hey, hey, well, then if that's the case, you said recent. Otherwise, I would have no, brought up Super Metroid. Okay. I said in the last five to ten years of your life. Oh, well, okay, but then Super Metroid can't fit in there because I played that in the 90s. But uh, right. I, I'd have to stick Super Metroid in there and Super Mario Bros. 3 and all those, again, all Nintendo games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't... That's the sad thing is, like, I love I love PlayStation and stuff, and the only games that really uh, stick out to me as games I, I truly, like, dug deep on the PlayStation were the, the Metal Gear games. Mm. And, oh, yes. and, and And Metal Gear... Uh, you just enjoy the idea of walking around hidden inside of a box yeah it's so much fun (laughs) but like Metal Gear uh, Solid 5 The Phantom Pain uh, that was one of the the games a few games on the PS4 that I picked up day one because I was so excited to play it and it was worth it Mm. okay I'd like to know more about that actually um, about Phantom Pain because that's not something I got on with and I love Metal Gear Solid I just it never clicked for me Really? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was very different. But once I got my mind wrapped around the fact that it's always, you know, the, the open world thing was a little too, was a little hard to grasp at first. But then once I started realizing, okay, you go from point A to point B, and then you kind of work within that little scenario and make that its own little Metal Gear experience. Mm. That's the kind of the way I looked at it. But it, it was a fun game really fun mechanics too that's that's the thing i like that there's always that thing about metal gear games where you can just do sort of whatever you want it was one of the first games to offer that where you know what if you want to stick up a uh, a soldier and like steal his rations and his bullets you can do that you can put him to sleep i i rarely actually would kill people in that game i would always just kind of knock them out well it seems like the other big thing in metal gear 5 is smoking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. like everyone's smoking in the game that's the only thing i remember about Metal Gear solid five is everyone <laughs> online being like you can smoke all of the time during this game i forgot about that that's weird because i didn't really think about that but you're right yeah. you can yeah it's like a, a feature of that yeah yeah the, the thing is whenever you would smoke in those games you would kind of lose life which oh, i guess is, is, is good yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah very strong message there yes of course <laughs> <laughs> um since buying my snes classic my super nintendo classic um uh, last summer i've reminded myself how much i love both super metroid as well as super mario world mm. um and then i've been trying to slowly but surely speed run contra 3 um i've been Ooh. working on that um so i can make it uh without dying now on normal setting but we'll see how fast i can go after that but, but let's get back to Daryl because uh, I, I got upset when you said uh, everything and I started, I sort of interrupted. So <laughs> every game is at play here, Daryl, every, every game. Oh, I mean, I, there is like a game that I'll come back to like repeatedly and that's Sonic 3 and Knuckles. That's the game that mm. kind of defined a lot for me and started everything really. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office right now and just behind me is the actual Mega Drive that I first got at Christmas 94, you know, which played Sonic 3. So it, it means a lot to me. And it's just a game that, 
you know, will always kind of surprise you, never make you bored and just makes you want to kind of like dance along to the music as well, no matter what it is. You know, it's it's great. And it's a game that just makes you smile, just makes you just like, it doesn't ever make you like just belittle you or patronize you or anything or, or handholds you. It just goes, here's a whole world on Floating Island. Just go for it. And it's, it's such a fun thing. It really is um that's a great one but of course you know you've mentioned metal gear i mean metal gear solid is just yes the very first one just it, it was amazing because that to me was the first game for me anyway that kind of crossed that line of it just being a game but also being an interactive movie as well but an enthralling one and it made you feel like you were part of it, you know, which is fantastic. And of course, you know, when you've got, like, say, Psychomantis reading a memory card, that's a whole other thing yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Or needing the uh, the vibrating joystick with the joy card, like with the with the directional pads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you needed the DualShock to, to yeah, get exactly, that Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I was one of those kids who actually enjoyed playing VR missions just as much as the main game. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Did you play, like, the expansion uh, pack, the VR missions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I bought that. So I bought that on the PlayStation Store maybe three or four years ago too, oh, right. uh, and I went back to it a bunch, uh, which is very weird to think. And I think that's the first instance of a game spinoff um, being just as like uh, interesting to me as as the the main series. Mm, it really is, and it's so random. You know, you've got like say random things where you're Sherlock Holmes in a way, knocking down yeah. the doors <laughs> and just solving a mystery, and then fighting like a Godzilla type soldier and one other. Yeah. It's it's so <laughs> random. But it it makes sense because it's Metal Gear Solid. It just works. <laughs> the, the Metal Gear games have always been the ones to bring out the most bizarre in video game creation. It's nothing. Yeah. Uh, Kojima's always done that right. You know, we can we can lament all we want about how Metal Gear Solid Two didn't actually have a snake as the protagonist, but I still enjoyed it. And that mm. scene with the sword at the end where you were Raiden and you were playing with that sword, or is it Raiden? Let's go with Raiden here. <laughs> okay. So you had the sword. I, I remember that being so much fun to control because you controlled it with the DualShock analog sticks. Yeah. It was kind of neat. And the thing I remember when I first heard about Metal Gear Solid, it, it flashed me back to the mid eighties when I was playing Metal Gear on the NES with friends and going through that and absolutely needing a player's guide to get through it because it was so hard to kind of understand on your own. Mm. Those were the days when you needed to like graph things out and uh, actually really think about getting through a game. I sound like an old man. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do not lament the changes of video games. I think every change that we've made has been for the better in terms of how much more approachable games are. Mm. Stuff like Metal Gear was really opaque. Like It was really hard to break through. And when I saw something like Metal Gear Solid come out, it just brought back memories and all in 3D. Although looking back at the graphics now, they, they don't look that great when you think back. <laughs> no. It's a strange one because, I mean, I think part of the appeal of Metal Gear Solid is because I think especially in this day and age, you've got so many games which take themselves so seriously that they, you know, they demand your full attention to be involved in the story and the gameplay and the levels, the characters, everything. But I think because with Metal Gear, even though it has that, overarching story of like nuclear weapons and genes and you know and sense and patriots and everything it still doesn't take itself too seriously because you still have the sherlock holmes things you still have the godzilla things you still have 
you know, the, the vibrating controllers and Otacon, you know, and it just works really well. And it, mm-hmm. and it gets to a point where you're just enjoying like what the game's given you really. And I think that kind of, that theme kind of goes across every single game as well. And, you know, I, I'm still conflicted on Phantom Pain because I felt like <laughs> I did feel like I was cheating in it in a sense. It sounds dramatic, but I think because at the end when you, I don't want to spoil it, but when you find out certain things, you kind of feel like, oh, what? Yeah. What, why? Why? Why couldn't I? Yeah, I don't want to go any more in, into that. But yeah, that was my my feeling there. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I felt that as well mm. at the end, but. I still enjoyed the journey there. Mm, Yeah, the journey was great. Yeah, it really was. So final topic of the tech section, uh, something that I'm sure will arise a lot of anger out of both of you. Uh, Angela and I have been holding off talking about the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog trailer for a couple of weeks because we're not sure how to approach it. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Daryl, we need to talk about this. Okay, uh, okay, okay. So, uh, so the movie has now been moved from November to Valentine's Day 2020, which I think is a really weird date to open a movie because of mm. the gigantic online backlash to the trailer in terms of Sonic's appearance. So I kind of wanted to talk to you um, as as a games journalist and as someone who's immersed in all of this pop culture, um, and I want to talk about like fan culture and like the line in between uh, fan entitlement and fan service and where that lies because I find it very interesting because this doesn't necessarily happen a lot of the time when a director says, you know what, you guys are right, we should probably walk this back and figure something out. But also, a lot of people online have been saying like, listen, either way, the people that are going to go see this don't really care what he looks like. It's going to be kids. It's going to be parents who take their kids, and it's going to be a new kind of Sonic. Yeah, it is. I mean, I feel that all of the, you know, the, the criticisms that happen with the trailer, I mean, to be honest, I mean, having a trailer that had Gangster's Paradise all the way through, it wasn't <laughs> the greatest of choices anyway. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they're watching it, they know going in there that they have to kind of like accept certain, you know, uh, consequences of this film being live action and they'll go in there going okay i know it's not going to be exactly the same but i'm going to go in and just see and i think what happened is alongside hearing gangster's paradise that they all we saw like the eyes of sonic and how he looked and you just kind of thought okay um i mean when i saw it i mean i just kind of accepted it for what it was it was just a yet again a game being converted into a movie by a studio who kind of understood it in a sense, but in a sense didn't. But I like Jim Carrey as, as Eggman. I think that works. You know, I think that works kind of really well. I like the concept of it, but the the way in which the the trailer sort of portrays him, it seems like it's we're watching a Rocky and Bullwinkle like movie because it's like, true, oh, yeah. this guy's going to chase this alien down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, coming from the the standpoint of a parent. Like, I'll be honest, kids will watch all kinds of garbage. They don't care. <laughs> and uh, I know my kid loves Sonic. He plays Sonic on the Switch. It's just interesting to see how kids approach this. Like, they're super excited to go see uh, Detective Pikachu. But that seems more of how something was done properly because mm-hmm. the fan reaction to that trailer was overwhelmingly positive. And I almost felt bad 
for the people that created this Sonic movie because mm. it was so negative. And I, 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 I wanted to like it. I wanted people to be excited about it and think, you know what, all those, uh, the leaks we saw about the, the poster and stuff were just a mistake or whatever. People were going to be okay with it. And no, they're talking the about the long legs. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I really wanted it to be okay. And uh, I turned out to be wrong. I listened to a podcast with the writer of the movie and he has yet to mention it. So I'm curious to see if in the coming weeks he says anything. Um, but yeah, it's this weird thing where like, when is listening to your fans like a bad thing? Like at the end of the day, right? Because mm. uh, constructive criticism is really, really good. It's very interesting. But at the same time, like uh, there's a reason you have a job handling intellectual property. Yeah, that's that's a weird thing. And it's a great point about Detective, I'm sorry, Detective Pikachu because that was a world where you had, you know, I mean, you had Ryan Reynolds like voicing Pikachu, which was great. And, but it was also in a world of Pokemon as well. Whereas here in a weird way for me with the Sonic movie and the trailer, it kind of feels like it's a hyper realized version of ET in a sense, but Sonic, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, but instead, you know, we, we have this thing where you've got Jim Carrey as Eggman, which is fine, but still it wasn't enough to detract from just how horrible Sonic looks because there have been games, you know, over the years since 91. And, you know, even though, you know, we're just going to be accepting that as it should be, and we should be really, we're seeing Sonic who looks like he's just been stretched with some plasticine and then given some (laughs) eyes from a felt-tip pen and that's it. Whereas, you know, (laughs) unfortunately we've got this and... I, I, you know, of course, I mean, I, I read all the criticisms, I'm not all of it, about would have taken me a week, but I read some of the criticisms and, you know, I, I feel like they were right to delay it, but I kind of feel like, and I don't know if this should be a question for you both. I mean, do you think it was like a, this was all planned? It was like a PR thing. They were meant to be oh. taking it back until February. This was meant to be. You're pushing into conspiracy territory. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've actually heard, uh, so I've read some of the, the, some of the criticisms out there. And what I've heard is that the director actually did want to make it more uh, um, uh, faithful to the video game um, franchise, but uh, the powers that be kind of asked them to have a new look. So he's actually feeling very vindicated right now from what I understand. Right. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, like, that's corporate meddling, which happens with every single kind of thing, too, right? Like, I mean, like, Detective Pikachu, by and large, was, you know, a very good movie. But for sure, they got notes from both, you know, the Pokemon company as well as, as the studio. Mm. I don't know how I feel about, you know, letting the fan control the narrative. Like, imagine, like, if, mm. if every video game, uh, you know, studio allowed fans to tell you how the next, you know, uh, Skyrim's going to turn out or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult one because I think, again, it goes into that realm of nostalgia as well, you know, especially in this day and age where, you know, I mean, we had like a game of Sonic Mania where it was received so well. And then you had kind of the other side of a Sonic fandom where Sonic Forces came out and it wasn't well received. And now we're in a point where, you know, oh, it's such a difficult thing, guys, because... You know, it's, it's, we, we've just seen a two minute trailer of Gangster's Paradise and a guy who looks oh, like, for sure, for sure. And, and we don't know really like what the whole film's going to be. So, I mean, even like from the teaser trailer of the Toby, the, the teaser poster of his outline, it wasn't yeah. great feelings then. So, yeah. No, yeah. 
It's just sad it won't come out in time for uh, Oscar nominations. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing, though. Imagine it came out and it was so good and so wonderful that it got nominated for Oscars. (laughs) You know what? Anything is possible, my friend. Didn't Babe get nominated, right, for Best Visual Effects? They won. That's true. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly enough, uh, these are the things that live in my brain. Um, <laughs> cause for me, when I saw the trailer, I was very excited about the idea of the hero's quest, right? Like based on, you know, the classic, you know, Sonic games, the idea that he'd have to go through, you know, a number of stages to do something, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Unfortunately, I will reserve my rights to judge until I've actually uh, seen the movie. But as you're saying, Daryl, like it, it's not boding well, like so far, every step of the way is kind of been, like <laughs> screwed up in one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even like Power Rangers with that movie a few years ago. I mean, I mean, I thought the trailer was good in that sense, but then you kind of watch the movie and essentially it's a Krispy Kreme commercial for some reason. So, <laughs> you know, so unfortunately, I think we just got to see how this plays out. <laughs> I think uh, we will probably have to reconvene in a couple of months and discuss this once the movie comes out. We'll do a special Valentine's Day episode all yeah, about great. this. Yeah. Uh, we'll discuss the great lost loves of life and then also the Sonic movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and with that, let's uh, let's head on over to uh, uh, a topic that you had chosen for the paranormal section, which I find very intriguing because it's actually something that we don't talk about uh, a lot um, on the show. And that is this sort of like the myths and the mysteries surrounding the Titanic. Mm, yeah. I mean, I have kind of like a, a confession because I've always had an interest in Titanic and I'm so glad that I've got the opportunity now to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. Double density. How did your interest in the Titanic begin? Oh, so this is going to sound very terrible, but it was the James Cameron movie. <laughs> 22 oh, that's not ago. terrible. That's fine. Speaking of Oscar yeah, winners. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Right. I remember when it, it first came out and there were so many like documentaries that were being aired on terrestrial TV around the time. And for whatever reason, my sister, when really wanted to see the movie for some reason the parents kind of like just taped all these documentaries that are around it i think that's why my love of documentaries is so strong in this day and age but it shows like all the past um you know the survivors being interviewed and things and i just felt like really just kind of immersed in it and i was only like well about nine nine ten years old at the time but really interested to how they thought it was because up until then it was just a book it was just you know um dramatized scenes but i think what really stood out to me in these documentaries and i didn't realize until a couple years later is when it interviewed and it showed the name of the survivor speaking it also showed like the year of when they were speaking that's what i thought at the time guys it wasn't until a couple years after that i realized that year um was actually when they passed away (laughs) which i thought oh okay (laughs) interesting and that creeped me out because i saw those documentaries a whole different light and ever since then i've just been following it and just wondering kind of like what really happened what what occurred and i've just always been just reading up about it to be honest when i was a kid that's when they actually finally found the wreck because it had been so deep. So like, I think it was mid eighties when they finally were able to get down to it because of all the pressure, right? It was so deep down. Mm. And I was fascinated with it, the whole story of it and the reasons why it crashed. Well, crashed, it's not an airplane. The reason, <laughs> the reason why it, it sank, it, it was so interesting to me that everybody build this ship as being unsinkable and all that. And apparently that I was reading about that. It, it actually was never billed as unsinkable until 
after it sank. Mm. So that that was just something that was uh, it was so big that it was going to be difficult to sink, but it was never really built as unsinkable. But there's all these stories about it, and I think we'll get into it. But it is you know ships are inherently. Uh, creepy in a way, right? Because they're mm. out alone in the ocean. And especially once they've sunk, you know, the barnacles grow on them. They seem ghostly in a way because it's so deep, dark. There's no light. And there's always the promise of like treasure, right? And like the idea mm. of like oh, yeah. treasure too. Mm. Yeah. The, the part of those documentaries when they were building, bringing up safes from the Titanic and what they were going to find, then they never found anything really super interesting. But uh, in those documentaries, obviously, they found lost, lots of interesting things once they got down to the wreck. And the movie was something, you know, I was kind of looking forward to it. I, even though, you know, as like a, a jaded teenager, you know, they were talking about it being a uh, a love story or whatever. But uh, I still found it really good. Uh, and did you see it in theaters? I did see it in theaters. Oh, wow. And I actually did you take was, a girl on a date? No, I went with a buddy of <laughs> oh, okay. mine. And uh, actually, I wasn't. I guess I wasn't a teenager, right? Because when did it come out? Ninety seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like twenty, and I was okay, working. I, I was working at a movie theater, so I got to see it for free. Oh, so I picture uh, you taking your mom. No, I, I didn't take anybody there, and um, I, I went with a friend. And I remember uh, about an hour in, I had to pee, and I held it in the rest of the movie. And imagine. Having to hold your pee in when yes, exactly. <laughs> There's water rushing down hallways and stuff. It was it was pretty much torture. <laughs> well, especially when Captain Smith was like just in the um the deck and just like the window just creaked and cracked open and he just got submerged. That must have been painful. Yeah. And for you. For him and for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brian, what about you? Like, do you have any memories of the Titanic? Like, like were you on it the, another the actual life? ship? Yes, perhaps. Uh, everything. Oh, right. Uh, I saw the movie when I was 12. It was fine. I mean, uh, I was a big James Cameron fan. I was found it interesting. Uh, a little bit long. Uh, didn't care for the end either, but uh, that's neither here nor there. You were hoping um, it wasn't going to sink? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, so, side note, have either of you seen Titanic 2, the TV movie? Yes. Okay, because it's not. on my queue to watch in like one of these streaming services, <sighs> and I'm kind of super excited by this. Oh, so I don't get it. What what's that about? Because they they remake the the Titanic and hope that it does nothing happens to it, but obviously something happens to it. Oh, I'm gonna go watch that with the family tonight. <laughs> After what was it? You're gonna watch like Cannibal Apocalypse? Like no Terminator Two? That was it. Yeah, I was gonna watch Terminator Two with the kids. <laughs> Why did his head um, explode? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, I I find the the idea. I, I agree with you, Angela, when you're describing like the idea of uh, sunken ships being like really mysterious and scary because there is also like the physical aspect to it. Like you were saying, there's so much pressure um, uh, that reaching it easily is very very difficult, right? So it's it's kind of like locked away in the same way that uh, last episode we discussed uh noah's ark right which is kind of similar and then it's hidden away etc cetera, etc cetera. um so i find this you know these kinds of things kind of, of mystical and there seems to be a lot of like ghosts attached to sunk ships because one of the notions behind the idea of ghosts is that it's people whose souls haven't you know crossed all of the way through and clearly in large disasters like this that is clearly the case yeah, and, and many people died with the Titanic, right? It, it sank and, they, they, you know, it's famous, right? There weren't enough lifeboats. It wasn't prepared for this type of disaster. Uh, it was in the middle of nowhere, obviously in the middle of the ocean. Uh, something that I had never heard of until I was researching today's episode was that there was a book written almost, uh, I guess, 14 or 15 years before the Titanic by uh, Morgan Robertson, 
called Futility, and it was about an unsinkable ship named Titan that sinks uh, by hitting an iceberg, which people thought this guy was a prophet, uh, which we like to talk about on this show, like Nostradamus and stuff, and uh, he evidently was not. He just said that it's a coincidence. You know, Titan is a great name for a ship. Titanic, also a pretty good name. Uh, I don't think anything else is going to be named Titanic, though, and has been since uh, 1912. I do actually it just made me think of something. Remember uh, in 2012 when people were tweeting about uh, the, the the ship having sunk a hundred years ago and people not realizing the movie Titanic was about a real ship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Being shocked that this was a true story. Mm, yep. Oh, the internet. <laughs> so just to let you know, people have been planning to build the Titanic two, the actual ship. Um, and it's been in dispute um, for a couple of years now. Well, yeah, because it's a terrible idea. Well, no, because the idea is like they want to like avenge the original Titanic by <laughs> okay. proving that they can successfully like go through this. But yeah, it's a it's a planned ocean liner um, that had to uh, be delayed a bunch of times, and apparently, like it's going to be twenty twenty two before we see it. Huh. I'm definitely not going on it. <laughs> I would like to meet the people who are like, you know what? Like first time, I know it didn't work out, but this time for sure it's going to work, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm not even I'm not even like superstitious. It's just the idea. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like gross. It's like saying like I would love to you know live and work in a tower called nine eleven. Like it's not a good idea at all. Yeah, or fly in a blimp called the Hindenburg. Yeah, right. How many blimps are you flying in? By the way, that's yeah. the case that you get to <laughs> that, choose. <laughs> that's how we travel in my family. We don't take jets. <laughs> um. So uh, Daryl, the Titanic, right? So yeah. um. Uh, you as an adult now, like you're fascinated by it as a kid. Like, how does how's your perception changed of of the ship itself and the lore surrounding it as an adult now that you've you know now that you're approaching it a little bit differently? Yeah, I mean, I think what kind of like keeps people like like me like me included like coming back to it is the fact that people were hyping it as it being unsinkable, and I think that kind of gave a lot of people like added comfort almost like an added bubble of like this is going to be fine and i think because of what the circumstances that happened i think that's why the the shock was just kind of taken out because they had that comfort around that extra comfort and to have that taken away such a shock to all of them and unfortunately you know with the uh, reduced lifeboats it was just just a, a tragedy and i think ever since then you know, it's kind of grown into something like just how people like survived, you know, how they were cling on to lifeboats, onto you know, bits of ice and how people were just, you know, just, just well, their lives were altered by it. I mean, there was one guy I remember, I mean, I'm, I was trying to research it and for some reason it's disappeared. How a guy was um, rescued from a lifeboat and I'm a Carpathia. And I think after a week, you know, his hair went from, total black to gray because of the trauma and the yes. shock. And the stress. I remember hearing about this. Yeah. And you know, that's just the amount and the, and I'm sure like the noises and the sounds of like, you know, when you were just roaring away and just hearing it all just terrifying. And I think especially with YouTube, I mean, that's just a great source to be on. Well, one of the, <laughs> a, a, one of the few examples of YouTube being a good service, an example here <laughs> um, of like watching like the interviews. I mean, there's one um, who is a uh, Frank Prentice. So he was the, uh, a storekeeper on the Titanic, like employed by white star, um, Starline, And he was interviewed maybe a year before his death in 1981. And he had the watch that he had with him 
um, as it was sinking. And he's always had it with him and it, and it stayed at that exact point of, I think like, wow. you know, 2.15 AM and even like a year before, and he was, how old was he? Um, about 92, he was still haunted. He was still, you could tell he could hear those screams, you know, you know, to, and you feel as though that he carry, he used to carry them with him. And I think it's that law. It's that, you know, those stories, those myths, those legends of what Titanic stood for and what it is now and how it was found in 85 as well of just how it's in that public consciousness now and also why it spawned terrible movies like Titanic 2. You know, it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. But um, yeah, it, it's a weird one, but it's always why I, I kind of come back to it because you almost feel like what could have been almost as well. Mm. The the lore that sprung up uh, around it as well is kind of interesting because mm. there's that mummy story, right? How it was carrying this cursed mummy from the British Museum to North America for display. And mm. uh, I remember reading about that on the internet years ago and people talking about it and being shared in, in chain emails right after the movie came out, obviously. And uh, that story is completely false. There was no cursed mummy. There were no cursed diamonds, nothing of the sort on the ship. It was just horrible, horrible luck. And everything that could go wrong went wrong. That's mm. the other thing, right? Because the ship was made to be able to to take an impact like that. But it hit at the exact spot it was not supposed to hit. And it destroyed everything that was supposed to save it. And that's what caused it to sink. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And in you know, you can go on YouTube again and you can like watch a video where it shows like all the Morse code, like chats, like being done. And you'll see like the, the Carpathia in contact and the Titanic. And then, you know, you'll just, it, and it becomes really haunting by the end because you're, you're reading like what the Titanic's sending out and you can tell the losing power and it's not sent full sentences or words anymore. It's just bits and bobs of like letters and things. And then it's just gone like that. And you know, again, it's such a tragedy, even, you know, a hundred and, you know, seven years on now, but, you know, there's, there's so many like, you know, still creepy things that come in. I mean, you said about the, like, you know, the mummy or the, the book that came out. I mean, one that kind of sticks to me. Um, have you heard about a, a Scott called, um, Jessie Sayer? No, no, uh, no, no. So she, she was, um, just, on a deathbed and this was the same night that the Titanic was sinking and she said she was hallucinating she said that she could see a huge ship being swallowed by the sea and also a name called um by the name of Wally playing the violin and then she huh. she passed and it turned out that Wally was actually Wallace Hartley um part of the orchestra playing the violin as the ship was going down so something around that time she must have somehow known what was going on at that exact moment, um, which is such a, a strange thing, you know, but there's so many like those stories that come out and even yeah. the, uh, like the Titanic experience that I think is in Vegas or Southampton is one of those, but there's a lot of creepy things that go in there as well. It's like, um, not that I believe in it, but it's almost like a, a proof of like a collective consciousness, right? Where do you believe in it? <laughs> no, of course I don't, right? <laughs> but um, but it, it, it could be something like that where she felt all these, and I look, uh, I, I don't think this is the case, but it could be explained by some as saying, you know, that 
such a tragedy was happening and she felt it sort of like when uh, Alderaan exploded and uh, Obi-Wan felt it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Completely analogous. Congrats, Angelo. One-to-one comparison there. Um, but a ship doesn't have to sink in order to be haunted. Angelo, before we were recording, we talked about one of our favorite um, uh, kind of like ghost ships, which is the, the RMS Queen Mary, right? So it launched uh, yeah. from... Uh, I do believe somewhere in New York and went across the Atlantic uh, maiden voyage in 1936 and it had successfully been used during World War II in order to bring soldiers over and then finally was docked in Long Beach, California in the 60s. But um, so many people have had like accidents or like died on the ship due to various kind of either like um, accidents or other reasons that it, it's used as a hotel currently, but apparently it's allegedly like quite haunted um, by people who do stay there or and people who do work there. Mm. It's uh, it's one of my favorite uh, Unsolved Mysteries episodes where they talk about the Queen Mary and everything that happens on there. One of the stories that sticks out, and look, I, I haven't looked at it in a while, that episode, but if I'm remembering correctly, it was the, the sound of children laughing and splashing in a pool when there was nobody in the pool. And uh, creepy kids are creepy. So before we go, uh, Daryl, I'd love to talk to you about your two shows, which I think are like two of the most interesting podcasts in terms of like hooks, right? So Pal Keys is all about boss fights. And then the Uppo show is all about how you use your iPad and what you like to see out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find those two really interesting topics. Um, mm-hmm. And how did you decide to sort of like go into each of those? So Alpo show started a couple of years ago where I saw a tweet from uh, Josh Topolsky. Um, he like part founded like The Verge and The Outline where he just said, you can't do work on an iPad iPads and I will not be proved wrong. And it just kind of riled me. <laughs> and it just got to the point where I was like, right, I'm going to just find a podcast that's just going to say, you know, how we use an iPad and just to prove him wrong, essentially. And I couldn't find one. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to try and do it myself. And this could maybe go on for a couple of months, but it, I can just get out of there and just prove that it can be done. And, you know, 45 episodes later and two years later, I think I've proved the point now, you know, which is good. Um, so and I've been, you know, enjoying it. I mean, the amount of guests that have been on, um, I mean, to be fair, I'm kind of amazed that a lot of them have said yes. Um, I mean, we've had like, say <laughs> like Federico and Mike Hurley and, you know, um, Jim Dalrymple. It's, it's just been really great to just kind of have their insights really into what they think the iPad should be. And I, that's why I'm kind of looking forward to what, WWDC is going to bring because it feels like a an iPad focused year really, which is uh, going to be fantastic. So we'll wait and see what Outpost Show um, does with that. <laughs> but with Power Keys, I mean, that was just something that I really wanted to talk about, and there has been like kind of breaks in Outpost Show where I did kind of bring on game journalists, and I thought I want to do a show that does games and go around the topics and. I just thought, you know what? A lot of people aren't talking about boss fights and I'm just going to do that. And I was worried, to be honest, because I thought a lot of people would just say, my favorite boss is in Zelda. My favorite boss is in Tetris. (laughs) My favorite boss is in Kirby and Mario. What bosses are in Tetris? Um, Time, Angelo. Yes. Time is the boss. Time is your enemy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to see how it goes. And there's been a lot of great suggestions with bosses. I mean, I think there's been one in Persona. There's been one in uh, Punch-Out. I think certain ones in Twilight Princess, which a game I've rarely played, but I've heard good things. And 
It is great. Yeah. And I mean, still, that's a show that's going out weekly. And I've got like a weird ambition to (laughs) have a show of Palkies every week this year until New Year's Eve. So we'll see how that goes. Um, But I'm halfway through at the minute. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) So what is, in your opinion, like the worst boss fight? The worst boss fight? (sighs) Oh, uh, I think... You know, it might just be Darth Maul in Star Wars Jedi Power Battles because he just is unforgiving as anything. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a... Have you ever played Jedi Power Battles, both of you? No, but I've watched some playthroughs. Oh, okay, okay. So it's pretty much kind of like Streets of Rage, but with lightsabers and force powers. And with Darth Maul, he's just very relentless. And there'll be times where you're facing him in that, that weird light engine room thing at the end of Phantom Menace, which makes no sense um, beyond at the basement of Naboo. And you'll he'll just do a force move where you'll just fall over a bridge and that's it, game over. Or you'll try and block him and he'll just break your block and he'll just annihilate you. And it took me, I think, a good four or five lives or credits as it's called in the game to beat it. Oh, it's such a nightmare. It's such a nightmare. But it's oddly sadistically fun as well. <laughs> That's my reason. I, <laughs> Brian, I have one actually. You, know, you made me think of one. Uh, and that would be Frankenstein from the original Castlevania. Oh, that's a good one. He drove me crazy. Not even Frankenstein. He has a little guy who jumps around, right? He's That boss made me so upset. And then when I replayed it a few months ago, I, I just tore right through him. It was so weird as as like... You know, a 12-year-old, I couldn't beat him. But then when I played now, I just, he had he gave me no trouble. And I was terrified to get to him because I'm like, oh, this is going to ruin my game. It's going to ruin everything. But no, I, I was able to beat him because the trick is holy water. Right. Well, the same trick that you use uh, in Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, aka Final Fantasy USA, for the final boss, if you just keep using the cure spell on the bad guy, he dies exceedingly quick. Huh. Uh, for me on my end it has to be mortal kombat 2's shao khan all right oh. because he's so cheap like just the way in which he fires off his fire like it is such an uh, a frustrating experience similar to what you were describing daryl it's just um it's made like i don't really rage quit but i will rage walk away and i've i've tried even as an adult to like play and enjoy it and when i get to that yeah. point i i kind of give up <laughs> like mike tyson Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the, uh, so Palkies is a super interesting concept. Um, I implore everyone to go check it out. Where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on a uh, Twitter mainly is where I'll rant and rave about hopefully a switch game that's being ported uh, on just Daryl Baxter, which is just D A R Y L. Cause everyone spells my name wrong. It's amazing. Um, or just darylbaxter.com and any podcast app, you just type in Palkies or the outpost show and you'll find my shows. And yeah, that, I think that's pretty much it. Perfect. And you can always find us over on Twitter, double underscore density. You can also head up to double density.net, click on the contact button in order uh, to let us know your thoughts about all of the subjects or more, whatever you want to talk to us about. We're always there to uh, listen to you. Uh, Daryl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. It's been a great time. This is it for episode 110 of the Double Density Podcast. Tune in next week as we explore the deepest depths of Mariana's Trench because, well, why not? (laughs) See you guys. See ya. (laughs) 